Hey everyone, this is Anna Callahan. You are listening to Incorruptible Massachusetts. Our goal here is to help people understand state politics. So we're investigating why it's so broken. We're imagining what we could have here in Massachusetts if we fixed it, uh, and we're helping you get involved. So I am joined by the inimitable uh, Jordan Bird Powers and the fantabulous Jonathan Cohn. Um, Jordan, would you introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Jordan Burke Powers. I use he, him, and I have 11 years experience in Massachusetts politics. Uh, Jonathan. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, Jonathan Cohn, uh, he, him, him, his. Uh, slightly shorter period in Massachusetts politics than Jordan. I've been active since 2013 on state, local, and national campaigns, uh, electoral and issue-based. I'm excited to be here. I'm so always excited to have you both. You're just lovely people. Um, so today we are going to talk about uh, our veto-proof supermajorities of Democrats. Um, one thing I have heard from many people um, is, you know, when you knock on a door or you begin talking to people about state politics, they say, oh, I, it must be okay. Aren't they mostly all Democrats? Um, and so we have this idea that if we have a Democratic majority, then they're passing the policies that we think they should pass. So I'm here to tell everyone that we have an 80% proof, uh, veto-proof supermajority of Democrats in the state house. We have an over 90% veto-proof supermajority of Democrats in the state Senate. Um, and yet there are many policies that seem to be impossible to pass, including 100% renewables and protections for immigrants and many other things. Um, so uh, I loved, Jonathan, I loved with the conversation we had not too long ago where you brought up our uh, intense battle here in the United States to get to 50 Democratic senators in Congress. And I would love you to kind of um, talk a little bit about that. And you're muted. Classic. Sorry about that. <laughs> we gotcha. Uh, the, yeah, so like probably many people listening to this, at the end of last year and to the beginning of this year, I ended up spending a lot of time calling into Georgia. I felt somewhat bad for the people of Georgia who felt they had far too much, uh, far too many calls or texts, et cetera. But there was a really intense process coming out of the, the election when we realized that two seats would determine whether or not Democrats could get like a narrow 50 seat, 50 seat majority, 50 plus one of if, if Kamala Harris ever needs to cast a deciding vote on something she can and has, has a couple of times so far. And with, when we think of all of the money that went into that, all of the volunteer power uh, just to get to 50, and then even beyond that, of, of what all that meant, of that, even though it was narrow, it was a majority. And we think even now of the art of getting to 50 for passing legislation, where we constantly hear about the holdouts, whether it's whether it's Joe Manchin, whether it's Kirsten Cinema, or even when it comes to labor stuff, Mark Warner of Virginia, or whatever Democrat is being uh, being ornering uh, and blocking something. We think of that kind of that careful dance of how you can assemble every single one of the 50 Democrats so that you can get, you can narrow something through. But we don't have that same obstacle here, right? That we kind of accept that we want to push things as far as they can go on the national level while acknowledging if you need every single one of 50, 
it will look different than it would the end goal. You while constantly pushing it to like be better and better and better, recognizing that you need 50. And as soon as you can get to 50, and as long as we for for some things, even some things you're blocked by the filibuster until they get rid of that. But in Massachusetts, when there's a, a supermajority, both houses, like comically large supermajorities, even. We don't need to think in the same way of how can I eke out that narrow majority support in order to pass something. And it should, when we're talking about state policy, change that sense of ambition and what we think that we can accomplish as well. And then to look at that reality of them, realizing that discrepancy for what that says about ambition and what the seeming ambitions of so many people there actually are. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a real when you think about the fact that they don't they could lose Democrats on any vote and still have veto proof majorities. Right. They could lose Democrats and still have veto proof majorities. And they have a party platform that supposed to give some guidance, supposed to give them some vision for shared (coughs) beliefs, shared things that (coughs) we all believe in. Right. So they're supposed to be shared beliefs that they enact. And they're not enacting just about any of them. I was just, you know, thinking about the party platform, which just as an aside, is comically impossible to find through the Massachusetts Democratic Party. It's, it is not a secret. It's like the worst, right? Like that they have hit it. It's not actually on their website. You have to download a PDF to get the party platform. You can't, just view what we what what Democrats believe. You have to go searching for it and then downloading it. But once you go through these many steps to find it, because it's completely hidden, you realize that the Democrats that um, across the state and our Democratic supermajority don't don't have the same vision at all, or seemingly don't have the same vision at all. There's some great stuff in this um, Democratic Party platform. Single payer is something that Democrats are supposed to be working towards. Medicare for We're all. Su- yep. <laughs> We're supposed and that's to be, been at the state house like 30 years, right? It's been in the state for 30 years. Affordable health care for all, right, sorry, affordable health care for all people has been in there for a long time and it's still um, still not hard. Affordable housing, excuse me, is actually what I was thinking about, is, is obviously we're going in the wrong direction and they still don't deal with it. There is supposed to be an, a push to end high stakes testing. Our state house doubles down on high stakes testing. There is supposed to be um, equitable funding they still haven't funded the bill that they've passed saying that they're supposed to do equitable funding. And that's just to catch us up. Good night to the, um, <laughs> and that's just to catch us up to the mistake, you know, to the promises made in 1983. That's not even to go further, right? To really think about eliminating the idea that your zip code will predetermine the education you get. There is so much good stuff in this party platform. There is support for immigrants. There's um, driver's licenses. There's progressive taxation. There's paying people fairly. These are things that we voters have to go fix because our democratic supermajority can't pass them. They can't pass them in their legislature. So it's up to voters to fix their things that they do. Criminal justice reform, real environmental legislation, you know, all of these things that we care about, um, the party platform has it. Democrats have a super majority and still we don't have almost any of them. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think about the, the sheer amount of money and time that people d- 
just desperately poured into Georgia. Like, it, like when you think about that and then you think like, we, okay, great. We've, we have that here in Massachusetts and we're totally squandering it. Yeah. And, and voters will pay attention. Like at some point it will catch up to you. You, can, can, you can't continue to fail to address the things that people care about on a day-to-day -day basis and expect to continue to be in power. Like at well, that, some well, point that will catch up to you. Has been that way. It's worked for a while. <laughs> It has worked longer than, than I think many people would expect, but still, you know, there is, you know, you, you need to do things to address people's ability to live where they want to live, go where they want to go affordably, live on this planet while doing so, and having a job that they're not worried will be automated in 20 years. Like those just basic things, let alone making sure that their kids are educated, you need to address those things. And the Democratic Party platform has some good solutions. They don't even need to be creative about it. <laughs> they can just pull out the thing that's supposed to be their their guidebook. That's right. So, so I, I, oh, Jonathan, go ahead. Oh yeah, Jordan, your point about housing rents, I'm always kind of amazed when legislators don't care more about their own voters being gentrified out of their <laughs> districts. It's yeah. like, so many legislators like, like kind of reliability and who the electorate is. And it's like, it, in, a, in that respect, like, good housing policy that kind of brings makes things more affordable helps renters is actually good for their own self-interest of belief of wanting it like a somewhat reliable <laughs> reliable constituency but you know what's uh, even better for their self-interest a sleepy electorate yeah you paying attention that's what that's what works yeah. that's worked for a long time um yeah. one one thing i want to do is sort of compare massachusetts to other states so we think of ourselves as, you know, being this amazing uh, democratic supermajority state, a blue state, a progressive state, you know, being all these things. Um, and yet I think we could, there are a couple of examples that I'd love for, your, for you guys to talk about where states that finally reach 50% in their legislature managed to pass a lot of things um, yeah. that we can't seem to pass. I know in let's, Virginia was one example. Let's talk about it. So I actually worked in Virginia politics. I remember when it was a red state. Um, I did um, I did some congressional work down there. I remember uh, young Tim Kaine, who I met on the campaign trail, which really just says how old I am, let alone anything else. Um, and you know, Virginia has just recently, and there was a lot of work. Virginia was a tough state to turn into a Democratic majority, and it has a slim majority. It didn't ask voters to pass marijuana reform. It just did it recently. It didn't ask voters, you know, things about the future, not just sort of trying to go back and fix some things that are obvious. It's, passed, it's only the second state to pass online privacy protection, real protections uh, for the future that people, because that's where we're going to interact. That's where we now work, right? All these things. They passed probation and criminal justice reform. They passed worker comp for COVID-19 pretty easily. Um, and they increased and clarified prevailing wages. So making sure that people with government contracts get paid well. And are these um, and things that we have not been able, it sounds like these are things all, we have not been able to these pass. These are all here. things that we can't pass with a supermajority and they passed when they got into power. And um, I think and, uh, I think Jonathan mentioned it earlier, but they also passed driver's licenses. So again, a slim majority in the South, the capital of the South, and they passed, they passed driver's licenses for undocumented workers, right? They get into, I mean, undocumented uh, folks. So they get into power and they pass things <laughs> to make people's lives better. Even things that are deemed impossible and controversial in Massachusetts, as silly as that is. 
uh, and that that when it comes to let's say the driver's license legislation that also passed in New York when New York finally got a Democratic uh, state Senate for those who aren't active have active followers of New York politics despite having an overwhelmingly Democratic state house the Senate had been in Republican control for a while in part and then back in the last redistricting cycle a decade ago where Andrew Cuomo actually approved uh, a map drawn by Senate Republicans in New York to gerrymander it in their favor and then helped prop up a, a group of I have renegade Democrats kind of who Exactly. Uh, that kind of it helped kind of support a group of like renegade Democrats who were propping up Republican leadership. That finally, to Andrew Cuomo's dismay, collapsed, and you had full Democratic government. And they they actually tried to be very ambitious about passing things that they had wanted to be able to pass for a long time. Driver's licenses was one of them. They also passed legislation, like actually an impressive like pro renter bill, helping to curb some of the escalation of of housing costs in New York for renters. Among, and that like the landlord lobby was like horrified at. And in some ways it's shocking that Andrew Cuomo was actually willing to sign. But they were able to, like, they were able to, kind of, to do a lot of that. I even remember thinking that when Washington, Washington state also had a similar dynamic of a group of breakaway Democrats propping up Republicans until they eventually, until Democrats did manage to take over a few years ago. And they passed a sweet, like a whole bunch of voting reforms when they took up. If I remember correctly, that included election day registration, something that still doesn't advance through our house, even though our Senate has supported it in the past. And it's something that's just kind of, that's mystifying in, in its ways that you see states where they fight really hard to finally get past like a 50% threshold. Uh, and then when they do, they start, they start thinking, what are all of the things that we can do? Especially because in, in their mind when they're doing this is knowing that they aren't going to have power forever and they want to make sure that they pass things to, that are popular and progressive so that they keep power and also with the recognition that they don't have forever. Whereas yeah. here in Massachusetts, there's just kind of a general lethargic attitude toward, toward many, of, many of the issues that we face where they, despite being a full-time legislature where they could be doing work throughout the legislative session, just don't have a lot of urgency. Senator Jeff Merkley actually met with me. So Senator from Oregon, he was so generous with his time. Um, he was, he basically ran uh, the equivalent to my organization in Oregon many, many years ago. Wow. Um, and I asked him like, how did he turn Oregon blue? Because people don't remember, but Oregon used to be a solidly red state. Uh, and, you know, he talked about the fact that they really focused on getting progressives to run for office, to build up from the state legislature up and that when they got into power, they had policies ready to go so that when they got into power, they focused on passing things that, to Jonathan's point, made people's lives better, made them more popular, and then gave them a reason to grow because people said, I want to do those things. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just think, uh, I just think, you know, this, these, this is the model, right? You pass things that make people's lives better and they reward you. Uh, with <laughs> with state power, and I want to jump in a little bit on something you said, Jonathan. That there mm -hmm. there was this group of Democrats that were supporting Republicans. Um, let's talk a little about how that happens here in Massachusetts. That there, you know, Baker has a pack, and mm -hmm. the Speaker. So Baker is a Republican, mm -hmm. right? Speaker of the House, Speaker DeLeo, a Democrat, mm -hmm. head of the Democratic 
party in the house. And how, what was up with them supporting the same people? So quickly, before we start talking about this, I just want to quickly address kind of the, the role that the governor plays in all of this. Because one thing that you'll probably hear, if we have any state legislators listening to us uh, uh, right now, is the Hi, common excuse. you are. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> nice to have you. <laughs> uh, you often get the excuse of, oh, but what does the governor think about it? oh, we can't do that. The, like, Charlie won't sign it. It's, it's dead on arrival. You'll often hear that from stuff. You'll, you'll have that whenever it comes to, say, taxes or comes to racial justice or immigrant, immigrant justice or kind of a uh, whole host of issues. You'll, you'll get them saying, oh, well, I would support this, but the governor is not going to sign it. So what is really even the point? When, as we discussed before, if you have an over 90% supermajority in the Senate and an over 80% supermajority in the House, you should not be thinking about what the governor is willing to sign. You should be thinking about like the fact that you, that even like that you have votes to spare, even if you need to get to the 66.6%, like repeating, right? Two thirds, two thirds majority. You, you're both of them are comfortably ahead of that just by raw numbers of the caucus rather than even just the 50%. And it, it's just mind boggling. Well, it's not mind boggling. You can see easily the incentives that they have for doing it, but of how often they like to temper ambitions by using the governor as a convenient excuse for what they themselves don't want to actually pass. When knowing full, full well that given how that the, this kind of the House and Senate leadership, when they want something, can typically line up the votes and they have many, given a centralized body in both cases, have the power to bring along any vote, that, almost any vote that they want to bring along, that if they're not doing that, it seems clearly intentional. Yeah, they, they don't need Governor Baker. Baker's irrelevant to our, to our current makeup of government. He, he's only, he's good for the cameras, but realistically he doesn't have the ability to stop things if they want to do them. That he stops anything is their choice, not the governor's mm -hmm. choice. That he sets agenda is their choice, not the governor's choice. They allow him to have power. He need not have any power. I don't know why he has power. No other state would do that. No other state would give over to the, um, to the opposing party uh, power that they don't have. But that's what's happening in Massachusetts because mm -hmm. realistically, as Jonathan said, they just don't want to do it. And they're looking for excuses to not do it, um, you know, it's uh, it's the it's the reason that you know the speaker of our house historically and the people in power have wanted Republican governors because it allows them to have the real power. If you have a Democratic governor, then they set the agenda. They then can push the party platform. They can force the legislature and the speaker to do things that they don't want to do. It takes away their power. Having a Republican governor allows them to have full control because they get to do whatever they want. And then they have some other patsy who gets to be the person at the top, the person who's the, you know, like, oh, we can't do it. Look at that guy. That guy's the guy, right? He's a patsy. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't serve a purpose in our current government in terms of power. He does, he, you know, he's there, he's, he's their fall guy. He's their person. He's the person who gets to be the reason they can't do things when they actually just don't want to do them themselves. And then they don't have to have responsibility for it. Yeah, that, that, so this is talking about a whole topic that we're going to get into soon, which is because the premise of what you're saying is that the, they, right, the people who this Republican governor is very convenient for, 
Like if they were deeply progressive, mm -hmm. you know, Bernie Warren types, that would not be, that would not be true. So I, don't even, they, I don't even need them to be that. If they were Biden Democrats, <laughs> they would pass things. Right? Like I, I, like, you know, like, I don't know. I don't need to, they don't even need to be Warren progressives. Like they could just yeah. do the things Biden was to do, expand government spending, raise people's wages, invest in education. Like I'd be fine with that. With yeah, like even that. with, and that's an interesting topic. Because even with all Biden's talk about bipartisanship, you know, he, he has been surprisingly willing to pass things that don't have, you know, Republican uh, senatorial. But I would argue solidly in the Democratic platform things. He's not passing radical progressive legislation. Right. He's passing solidly things for which there are shared vision and shared values mm -hmm. and supposedly a shared platform to guide his thinking, right? Like he's not, he's just doing basic democratic ideas, which is you spend to get out of uh, problems and you invest in people at the bottom and raise up their wages. It's very basic. It's old fashioned Keynesianism, right? And that's all he's doing. He's not, and that's like what we're asking here, right? It's like what we're asking here. That's right. Um, as well as even like, Mind you, you know, like Joe Biden has these different, even though he, does, he doesn't want to tax rich people as much as I think that we should in many different ways. Joe Biden has known recently he would like to tax rich people more. And like, it's always stunning how, like, like outside of the context of, of pretty much the fair share amendment, which is very important and we're fighting to get on the ballot for next year, most Democrats in the state, state like in our, in our overly Democratic state legislature, get really antsy at any mention of taxes. Yeah. So I think you get to this, so that's where you get to this weird place, right? To your point, Anna, and I'd love for you to expand on it, uh, that the speaker and the, and the, and the governor, Republic, opposite party people are working together to get legislators that aren't, I, I would argue, ideologically invested in a project of making people's lives better. They're ideologically invested in the idea that these, that, pow, that, the, that the people in should power should get to have power, right? Like they, mm -hmm. that they're ideologically invested in power being the only decision makers, people, elite power, people with, you know, already deep pockets and deep and deep influence that they are the ones that get to lead us. And we all just need to um, sit down, shut up and listen to them, right? Like those are the people that they invested in. So in that sense, they, you know, their ideology isn't, um, isn't sort of parties, their ideology is power and the powerful. Yeah, we're going to be talking a lot about those things. <laughs> a lot. And then, uh, Anna, to your point earlier, one thing that was striking to see last year, uh, right, so Charlie Baker's allies created a su this super PAC that spent quite a lot of money across across the last year on state legislative races, as well as some other down ballot races across the state. And when you have a number of like rich Republican aligned donors funding a PAC, your first thought would be these are people who are going, they're going to try to help flip seats. Not that like flipping seats gets you a whole lot here in like Republicans <laughs> flipping seats gets you a whole lot in Massachusetts. Uh, but what was striking to see is that that, uh, that, pack, that super PAC of Republican aligned donors and particularly people who are very close with the governor helped spend money supporting a number of Democratic incumbents as well. So that when you had certain Democratic incumbents facing challengers from the left, that super PAC was happy to spend, spend some money, especially I think on mail and on Facebook ads, boosting the Democratic incumbents. And that, that showed something that say, many of us in the progressive space often complain about that Jordan was just putting up, 
of the underlying kind of share the underlying consensus between the governor and the speaker of the house that the governor's allies would see it see it as in their best interest to prop up a month like a number of democratic incumbents in the house shows that in many ways they don't view a number of those democratic incumbents as actually a threat to what the republican governor wants to do because if those incumbents are largely going to do, do what the speaker speaker wants and kind of a go along to get along attitude that's fairly dominant in the house that system of power especially power for the sake of power and maintaining all of the bits of access along with that stays in place and it, and it helps and it's kind of like a I scratch your back, you scratch mine, kind of ecosystem of, of money and power uh, kind of operating on that, which is striking to see that the same super PAC uh, propping up some, some democratic legislators who would probably call themselves progressive and also funding some like incredibly right-wing Republicans at the same time uh, in general action races makes you really question about what the, why those donors view them as have as both benefiting the same end. Why are they friendly to mm -hmm. the, the, the purpose of, as Jordan, as you said, of mm -hmm. maintaining the power structure? Um, so uh, next week, we are going to talk about the power that the speaker has um, in the state house. And I can't wait to talk about that because I think we're all, you know, pretty horrified <laughs> and excited to make sure people understand what's going on there. Um, but, you know, this whole idea that we have to pour money into places where we could maybe just get to 50% Democrats, and then we allow our own state government to fail year after year after year, I hope that listeners will realize uh, that we have a problem here and we can fix it. Um, so always thrilled, excited, loving being here with you both um, and uh, look forward to chatting with you next time. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you. Bye.